Welcome to a very spooky edition of As a Film Student. Sneaking up on you like Jason Voorhees sneaks up on girls who let their mediocre boyfriends take their virginity. I'm Mon. And I'm Nick. And um, I would make a Hamilton reference about being gone for so long, but honestly, I'm still, I'm still fucking scarred from that Thomas Jefferson Miku bind, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that is, that is... We had to take a hiatus because of that. I feel like I shouldn't have spoken about the Miku binder from last episode. You should not have. But no, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. Okay, but other than that, how are you? How am I? Honestly, uni has been taking over our lives. And so we have assignments upon assignments upon assignments. And then you have the stress of like being in a literal pandemic and actually not going outside. So we kind of kind of want to just take a little break um, just to kind of reconvene and, and kind of rethink what we're doing with our lives, to ponder our thoughts and have an existential crisis amongst all of us. I, 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 I'm feeling better now because we're kind of getting back to the pod again. And now that most of the assignments are finished, there's still a few more, but, you know, like, I feel like the podcast gives us a sense of purpose and I feel like I have a will to live again. Yeah, a sense of relief and um yeah. honestly, you euphoria and um speaking of euphoria, I am in space. Jesus, I have not come down. A story will be on our Tumblr that we have now. <laughs> we have a Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Tumblr. I got cuz I'm on a bender and I started a Tumblr for us. That's that is how adorable. This shit has been. I yeah. is are we signed the Tumblr just so we can get the more uh, get more Thomas Jefferson Miku binders? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we started a Tumblr just so that our uh, we can talk shit to Tumblr to their face. Exactly, I'm, they deserve I'm it. I'm not a fucking coward like my brother William is. Okay? <laughs> yeah, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Okay, all right. So um, today we're doing a very spooky episode because um, I love spooky in all its forms um so we are talking about john carpenter's movie the thing and uh basically we're just using it as an excuse to talk about horror the good the bad and the scary of it all speaking of the thing i actually have never seen it until last year like so i never really grew up with horror movies the only movie like horror movies i ever grew up with is like the asian ones like the ones with like the ring where it's just like a girl with like long hair over her face and she's like like that (laughs) was what scared me like i remember so you know how white people have haunted houses like, you guys have haunted houses. Us yeah. Asians, we already live in a haunted house, okay? We, we openly invite ghosts into our house. In, okay, in Cambodia, where I'm from, we have, uh, we have a week dedicated to ghosts coming to our house so they can eat food with us. We let them come in. You white people, you white people, let, let the ghosts out, okay? Because we're letting our dead relatives come in and eat food with us. I feel like a lot of Asian horror movies are really predisposed to the dead, and Mm. I feel like that's a really interesting cultural difference, because a lot of white movies are like, ooh, here's this psychopath, or here's just this person who's gonna stab you. Yeah, because in Asia, the psychopath is literally your mom. So it's like, it's not that scary, you know? It's literally your mom or your neighbor, Like, like, we're very superstitious, like... For me, I'm still very superstitious. I don't. I, I. I leave. I leave food outside the house so the ghost doesn't come in. So it comes outside. It comes. It, it's like it's like a welcome mat, but like you can stay in the welcome mat, but you can't come to my house, man. <laughs> you know of paranoia, the thing which yes. is basically, a, it it embodies paranoia, claustrophobia, mm. and just motherfucking men in the. Ice. Men in the snow. The thing about the thing is that back in the 80s when it came out, critics actually really hated it. Like, one quote that stood out to me was somebody calling it instant trash, which was pretty ironic, and not in an Alanis set way, in an actual ironic way. Because my introduction to it was, 
being informed that this is the generation defining horror classic and you exactly. had to watch mm. it if and you like to get into horror. just kind of go into that like in the new york times like this guy named vincent canby i don't know who he is probably isn't important anymore some cunt yep some cunt he basically says the he calls the thing the quintessential moron movie of the 80s which basically encompasses everything that you said about it being the most trashiest film in the 80s and then this guy from Newsweek also says, the thing is so single-mindedly determined to keep you awake that it almost puts you to sleep. Mm. Like, and I'm, like, and it's just really weird how people hate this film because it, people thought it was just too gory and too, like, too gratuitous in the way it depicted, like, all of these events that are happening. And, and also, by the way, it was also going against E.T. by Steven Spielberg, oh, which fucking I fucking hate that movie, by the do? way. I actually don't like E.T. I, I can't stand it. Like, I, I have I, not I, seen it since I was five or something, so I can't really say. But I've seen it like when I was 12 and I hated it. I just thought the alien was so scary. I thought it was the most terrifying fucker that I've ever seen in my entire life. That wrinkly little old... <laughs> bitch man i don't know what it is but it looks deformed and i hate it i don't understand why people love the movie but weirdly the critics later on chose to give it a chance again and they obviously loved it um one of the best examples is tarantino he actually used it to make he, he was influenced by the thing to make the hateful eight yes so oh he God. did I know, and so... Uh, and, um, oh, uh, Kurt Russell, he's in both of those films. Exactly, so it's a really nice callback. Um, but yeah, basically, The Thing is such an amazing film, but I can't believe that people actually hated it, like, in the 80s. Like, what the fuck was going in the 80s, you know? Well, first of all, probably a bunch of cocaine. And oh, second yeah. Of all, it might be like a generational difference where the baby boomers and the yeah, yeah, Gen X, they just didn't appreciate it in its time. But it has since been vindicated. Mm. And speaking of like generations, like Gen Z and the Hateful Eight, as you mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of like paranoia sort of shit going on. Like... I don't know if it's just the pandemic. Um, obviously, the thing was loved before the pandemic. Mm. But we, as a culture, not as a culture, but as people, really seem to like that paranoia. Who among us is the thing? Exactly. And you see that with, uh, with Hateful Eight. You see that with Among Us. And you even see it going back to one of Tarantino's first film, which is Reservoir Dogs. That was mm. all based on paranoia. We just yeah. love that sense of dread mm. of like, ooh, who is I it? I know where it's like, like, like what you said before. Like during the eighties, in this time, it was at the peak of paranoia. Like you're talking about, like there was the threat of nuclear war. There was the threat of, um, like the AIDS virus that was happening. There was the threat of, um communism and the red scare mm. like the, all of these things that were happening during that time especially the aids virus which i'll definitely get into later on because it plays a lot into how the thing was actually constructed in terms of its subtext but basically all this stuff that's happening in the 80s caused a lot of people to be really scared like during the 80s and 90s i think during that time there was also something about the satanic scare as well like with de like dungeon yeah. dragons like, people used to think that it was satanic. Um, I know, but it's Karen's just... Karen's during the 80s were, like, a different breed. The way The Thing depicts paranoia is one of the best that I've ever seen in cinema. And it's also, like, made as a really good companion piece with The Shining as well. Mm -hmm. Like, it deals with isolation, cabin fever, paranoia, and claustrophobia. And all of these things basically cause people to go insane so it can be a product of mental illness but it also can be a product of suspicion of like within your people so it's something that's super interesting and when you will when we're reflecting back to the film when we're in a pandemic where we are in isolation when we are kind of going like suffering from cabin fever and when we are like going like looking at facebook and there's a lot of paranoia everywhere mm. so there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation about what is happening with covid19 you're looking back at the film, it's like, 
holy shit, this is happening in the 80s as well. The thing is made in the 80s and it still is important to us now. So that's just kind of a demonstration of how monumental and how ageless this film really is in terms of its way of dealing with paranoia. Exactly. And that's what I kind of found funny about that instant trash comment is that, you know, maybe instant trash leads to classic glory. And you mentioned mm. earlier, I just want to say, because I don't think we will, well, I, I don't know if we'll like talk about specific moments that we really loved, but I just want to say, because you mentioned Cabin Fever. Mm. One of the best moments in that film, and I know that it's like an overplayed trope now, but when McCready goes, when I left my cabin, I turned the lights off and the lights are on. Oh my, it's just, it's so understated, but so, oh my God. And I know. And you get scared the same way that you might get scared if it was a jump scare, but it's not. And that's what's beautiful about the film. I know. So basically, the actual film itself is a remake of a adaption. Because it was a book, and then it was a 1950s film, and then it got remade into an 80s film, and there was a 2011 film by the same name, but it's not a remake. It's actually just a prequel by the same name. Okay, let's let's talk about the thing 2011. Yeah, I haven't seen it because I I didn't really think that it was useful to me. I just didn't really care because because I just didn't want to waste my time. Because I, I actually thought it was a remake. So I was like, no, I'm not watching this remake. I'm not wasting my time. So Yeah, no, I I went into it also thinking like, uh-huh, this is going to be a shitty remake. And then it's like, wait, this isn't a remake? Wait, they're Norwegian. Oh my god, they're doing like a prequel thing. Oh, I misjudged yeah. you. <laughs> and like, The thing is that everyone really shat on that film, the same way that they shat on the original, uh, The Thing, but the makers of the 2011, uh, film actually did want to be, like, reverent to the original The Thing. I- I hate that name so much, I just- it's so hard to talk about. And it- yeah, but, see, the thing is that it could have been- it could have been, like, really good, just the concept, but- the execution was all the dumb horror tropes that we don't like, as opposed to the brilliance that was it. Because, you know, uh, the original The Thing, and we'll talk about this in a second, uh, had really intelligent characters just making really good decisions and acting in their best decisions, because they're scientists, so they should act like scientists. Exactly. And, like, The Thing was an adapt- like adaptation of a book called Who Goes There? But the interesting thing is that there isn't much similarities between the actual, fi- like the actual film and the book itself because it isn't really a faithful ad- a- adaptation of the book because the only thing that's similar is the fact that it's, you know, ah, a research station in the Antarctic, and that's literally it. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's basically what it is. That's that's it's just the only similarities is that that happens. Um, yeah, and like it's also a remake of a nineteen fifties film called The Thing from Another World. Yeah, so basically, there's nothing inherently wrong with it being a remake, and that's to say that remakes, prequels, very late sequels, they don't have to be bad. Yeah. Because we see this, because uh, uh, scholars frequently talk about that 30-year cycle between films, where we just mm. keep remaking them, and I don't know why, but the 2010 version of that cycle is really shit, but the, the like, the 1980 version of that cycle, cycle is really good. Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually really true, like, I feel like with the, I think because the 90s, the 80s were very, like, remake like, they were, re- like, re- they were remaking yeah. a lot of stuff, yeah. Can we, can we, let, let, let's, let's talk about what happens in the film, and Mm. what actually occurs in the film. Like, I'm going to talk about my favorite scene in the film, actually, the blood test, because it's the one that kind of really makes you kind of feel really anxious. Like, Mm. I remember I was watching it, and there's that scene, right? McCready is just like, okay, he says, and I quote, you see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue, but blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive, call away from hot needle, say. And he kind of, the way Carpenter actually delineates what happens. So it's basically the whole scene, they need to figure out who the imposter is, right? They're in this kind of like 
area and they have to test and see which blood is, well, not the thing, right? Because it will attack. Mm. And they basically get blood from each person that's in the in the cabin. And they get each other's blood and it's all in kind of like a Petri dish. And he gets the hot needle. So McCready gets the hot needle. And he puts the hot needle on the blood and it sizzles, but nothing happens. And he does that for a few and it, he creates a false sense of security. Because you as the audience know that there's an imposter amongst everyone else. But you don't know which one. So you kind of are always just ready in your seat and it's just so thrilling. And you're just like, oh my god, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And like, as soon as you let your guard down, the alien props up and he drops the petri and like, shit happens. And yeah, I think that's bam. such an interesting film because it's just like an like, interesting part of the film. It's just like, bam. And it's like a jump scare. And you're like, what the fuck? And I think that's the way he does it, the way he stretches out that tension and then basically like lets it go and it springs back. I think that's one of the most powerful moments in the film. And speaking of the blood test, this is where I'm going to talk about the AIDS virus during the 1980s, was during this time, there was a lot of rampant homophobia. And Mm -hmm. back then they weren't educated about HIV and AIDS. Basically, with the AIDS virus, people didn't know what it was. And they just assumed that it was possible by just breathing or just touching somebody. And people would accuse other people that they had AIDS if they Mm. hated them. Like, it was stuff like that. It was that paranoia of literally homosexuality that happens in the 1980s. And that blood test scene is kind of indicative of that because... To tell that you have AIDS is you need to do a blood test. And that kind of basically wraps up what the thing kind of is. It's an embodiment of paranoia of the 80s. John Carpenter does a lot of really good suspense. That's that's the thing, though, because um, in that blood test that you just described, it's it counts kind of as a jump scare, that final it, blah, it, out of yeah, the blood. It does. But it doesn't feel like what we in the modern day, you know, think is a is a jump scare. Okay, like I am that's one reason why I do not like I do not like horror movies is because I hate jump scares. And I hate the threat of like something just scaring me out of nowhere. But with the thing, it kind of that build up and that suspense and that false sense of security. Whereas nowadays, you just, you go into a horror film and it's like, yeah, be scared now. It's, it's just like, we're gonna put something in the screen, screen really suddenly and play like a, those high-pitched violins and you're gonna jump because that's your natural, you know, uh, natural reaction to it. And the thing is, for me, because I, I said earlier, I'm a scared fucking bitch. And I get triggered that, like, really easily. Like, you can just be standing behind me and I will get so scared. I'll see that, and yeah, I'll get scared by it, but I don't fucking respect it, and I don't like it. But when John Carpenter does it in The Thing, it's actually earned. Yeah, it is. And also the most interesting part about the way he does it is the ending itself. Because the ending is actually open. It isn't really closed off like other Holly, like other fucking Hollywood films during that time, like E.T. or whatever. And so Carpenter was actually really worried that the thing was very risky. So he basically said, and I quote, I remember the studio wanted some market research screenings. And after one got up and talked to the audience, there was one girl who basically asked, what happened in the very end? And I said, well you have to use your imagination. And she said, oh God, I hate that. We were dead in water, dead. And that's something that's really interesting is because people don't like open endings. And I understand that. But open endings is one reason why, one of the reasons why the thing is so amazing is because it leaves it ambiguous. It leaves you to your imagination. Like who is thing is it mccready is it childs like who is it like either it doesn't even have to be either of them exactly and they're gonna live in paranoia for perhaps the rest of their lives they don't know if the thing is still going to be there anymore if it's still gonna affect 
you know, it's if it's still going to invade humanity again. Like, we don't know. And that kind of, like, is incredibly interesting. And another thing about the third act is that it's basically foreshadowed in McCrody's first scene when he's playing chess against the computer. You know, he tries to outsmart it. Mm -hmm. He tries to outsmart the computer. He tries to outsmart the thing. But despite all his techniques, he kind of loses. But his ultimate, you know, fuck you, is pouring the whiskey on the computer and burning everything to the ground. His ultimate decision is to fuck you, I'll burn it all down before I admit defeat. And that's what he does in the end. Okay, so one of the reasons why the thing is so amazing is the fact that the characters are actually intelligent and actually interesting and actually real, authentic people. Because when you think of horror movies, you think of those dumb, stupid idiots who die. And and, and, and they're stupid and you're just like, why? Why would you fall down? Why are you so close to the car? Why? You're, you're fumbling with your keys? Oh my god, oh my god. Like, just run. Like, who cares about your car? Just run. Like, you see these people, they're like, oh, I hear a scary noise. I'm gonna go investigate it. Bitch, you run. You don't investigate it. Yeah, that happens in horror movies all the time. But with The Thing, they're actually smart scientists. Now, it's interestingly, like, all these characters basically kind of fit into an archetype, right? And they all play a distinctive role in the film. But as the audience, you try to figure out any discrepancies or anything that kind of seems off to see if the imposter is really that person. And that's something that is interesting because it kind of forces you to kind of try to figure out what is happening, figure out who is the imposter, who is the thing. And you as the audience don't know that. And you're kind of watching to find out who is, is a child, is a McCready. These men are kind of in a power play within themselves and within the thing. Because the thing, it's something that makes himself into anybody that you know. And so you have a distrust of everyone that you know. And that is where paranoia comes in. Honestly, I, um, this is a weird connection, but because everyone says, oh yeah, this film is like Among Us. This film is like Hateful Eight. Yeah. This film is like every other paranoia thing. But I uh, compared this film to 12 Angry Men because it's, it's actually 12. I did count. It is one of those male-centric films. Yes, you never see a woman. Oh my god, no, it does not pass the Bechdel test, but who gives a shit? It's a film, and it's like 12 Angry Men, where it doesn't pass the Bechdel test, and it is just 12 men, in essence, arguing about a thing, and the verdict that they come to is life or death. That's true. And so it is very uh, character-driven, it's very uh, writing-driven, and mm-hmm. it's, in essence, it creates a brilliant film, because I'm probably going to yeah. watch it tomorrow. Apparently, though, no, 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 I feel the film actually rewards rewatches. It does. It does, because, like, the more you rewatch it, the more nuanced things that you learn about it. You learn about the, the hidden things that you, you didn't see in your first watch, like the way the dog kind of... You know, when the husky comes back, how does he come back? How does he know that there's people there? It's like, you kind of think about it and you're like, oh. And when you rewatch it, you see all the places that the husky went before being locked up. And you see all the places that other people went before they got killed and shit. And it's like, oh, okay. Exactly. And that is what, that's the most powerful part is that Carpenter rewards reviewings and rewatches and that type of film is what I love is that I I love those type of films where you have to rewatch a couple times to really understand it and I hate films that have too much exposition like (laughs) E.T. You hate E.T. Jesus. I'm using using E.T. as an example because it came out during the same time I believe and E.T. has heaps of exposition about all of this like just about stuff that's happening but then if you compare that with the thing it doesn't it's all up to you and you don't know who the imposter is we want to know who the imposter is but we don't and it's like what it's literally a life and death situation so it's really 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 cool i really love it um yeah (laughs) but 
let's talk about the score as well by I don't want to pronounce his name wrong. Ennio Mericone is a Italian composer. He was very famous for me um, for composing songs for spaghetti westerns. His most famous one was the one he did for the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, but it's basically the orchestral element of this just heightens up the tension and suspense and that was beautiful. I love the music and I love the score. And let's talk about the most amazing thing about the film which I fucking love, the effects. The practical oh, effects. Yes. You know, I saw them and at first I was like, yeah, that's really good. It's not actually like, holy shit, that looks so real. It's more of a, holy shit, that hasn't really aged that badly. That's not like... Exactly. There's no bad CGI. Bad CGI ages so quickly. But the effects in the thing, because it's like practical effects and because they were good at even during the day they have not aged that much and so they're still really good yeah so the guy in charge of practical effects was his name to what his name is rob button and he basically focused on on doing a practical effects instead of just cgi because you can always just do cgi for like the 80s i think it would have been much more easier but they chose to do practical effects because it it's quite niche it's quite, it's practical, but it's also terrifying. It helps get the element of gore and of horror and of that grotesqueness into this kind of like, into like the spheres of, of horror. And it's scary, basically. Like there's, you know, that scene of when the, I think the most famous scene is the, um, is when the torso opens up, the stomach opens up and there's like, yes, oh my God. And then, and then the guy's hand gets severed because of the teeth because it's just so unexpected it's just a guy doing cpr and then holy shit the chest starts swallowing him and then shit hits the fan exactly and that is what is amazing about the thing is that this guy's doing cpr and then his hands are severed holy fuck that is fucking genius and even if it's like even if it's like like the human you know the human head when the human mm. head gets cut oh off, God, yes. and then it starts sprouting legs and has an antenna like a cockroach. <sighs> and the camera just lingers on it, and it's just, oh my God, the cinematography. Everyone talks about, like, the practical effects and all the acting and all that shit, but, like, the cinematography, I feel, goes, like, a bit underrated in this film. Like, you remember that one shot, um, uh, he gets locked up, and it's just, like, are you the thing? Are you not? I don't know. We're not at the point where we're going to kill you because we think it. And they go to check up on him. And there's just a noose hanging there right next to his head. And it goes completely unspoken. It goes completely unacknowledged by any of the characters. But it's there. And that to me just says, which is what makes this film just so good. Oh my god. I feel like we are sucking off this film too much, but... Honestly, it deserves a Carpenter, I am a whore for him. Yeah, but I feel like the way we describe horror and thriller nowadays is so like, oh, this is this has to be horror, or this has to be thriller. But the thing is a good example of it being both horror and thriller. Because it's horrifying, it scares you, but it's also tense and very suspenseful and it's a great example of those like both of those genres kind of intermelding into like one kind of entity and that entity is the thing and I think it does it in a really amazing way like I said earlier how there's a lot of connections with The Shining as well The Shining does a very similar thing like it's got cabin fever claustrophobia isolation Mm. like it's got the same thing but with I feel like with Carpenters he does it in a more interesting way the thing about the shining is that it was a film directed by kubrick and kubrick was a massive little bitch yeah yeah you can suck him off all you want but he was like a little bitch but it was based off a book done by another little bitch stephen king as much as i love him sorry stephen you're a fucking cunt bitch yeah like I love, like I, I do love The Shining. I love the cinematography. I love the editing, 
but that's kind of like I love the performances, but that's kind of it for me. Like that's kind of it mm. was that Kubrick's version was great, but I'm not really a fan of Stephen King's work per se. And weirdly, I like I said before, like horror has not been my favorite genre because I'm a pussy, but I just feel like it's weird because I love horror as a genre, but not as a film genre. So I love reading horror stories and I love playing horror video games and I love like talking about horror and talking about scary stuff, but I hate watching horror films. And let's kind of talk about the horror genre, seeing it's Halloween. And let's talk about kind of how we kind of approach horror because we know that I'm a scared pussy little bitch boy about horror, but I don't have a lot of, I'd say, exposure with horror film. What do we love about horror films and the horror genre? There's a lot of things that I, there's some things that I really like about the horror genre is that the horror genre is very inventive. It's very experimental and it's sometimes, you don't really see the things that happen that occur or that's written in horror seen in like other genres of film. And it's, I'd say horror is a very genre defining genre. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Where, like, I do. When you, when you look at horror, you're like, yeah, that's horror. When you look at a poster of a horror movie, you're like, yeah, that's a horror movie. It's like not like romance where it's like, oh, is it a romantic comedy? Is it a romance or a drama? Is it an action? Like, I don't really know. But with a poster, you just know it's going to be a horror. That's, um, that's similar to like what I like about it is that, okay, you go into a horror movie and you basically expect what you get. Okay, because like out of a romance, it's always like, oh, will they, won't they? But out of a horror, it's not that will they, won't they, it's that am I going to be scared? Am I going to have a fun time? Am I going to see people die? And that's something that I really love about horror is the gore. I love gore so much. <laughs> I cannot stand gore at all. I, I don't know why. I just love it. I, I don't even care if it looks really fake. Yeah. I don't care how many shitty plots I have to get through. Just give me blood, damn it. Oh my god. Okay, that is terrifying. Anyways, Nick, what I find interesting about horror is that it's one of the few genres that actually make you feel something mm. and try to make you a, a, elicit a reaction. When you watch, when I watch romance, I'm like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. If they die, they die. If they don't get together, they don't get together. Because love is fake. It's stupid. And then if you look at war, it's like, yeah, that's pretty sad. Anyways. Um, yeah, or if you like, look at like war. another kind of genre film, like action, it's like, whoa, it's exhilarating. Okay, but is that it? But with horror, it's like, holy shit. Um, that's really terrifying. I'm going to think about this for like three days now. And I'm going to have nightmares about it. Do you know what I mean? Where it yeah. basically like elicits reactions and makes you feel things. It's like a psychological. It's it's one of the few genres that play upon like your kind of psyche in that way, and that's kind of why I love horror is mm. the way it does that. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you've seen it, um, but uh, this uh, Blumhouse film, uh, Creep, and uh, spoilers, like skip fifteen thirty seconds, but um, is a really uh terrifying moment where it's just it's silent it's completely silent because it's a found footage film and they're just showing the footage of one guy putting an axe in another guy's head and that like all there were, there's so many jump scares in that film there's so many like cheap scares but that one moment in the finale was just that was scary and yeah i get what you mean about the psyche sort of shit because like that was like, oh my god, that was terrible. It is. I remember like remembering certain scenes in movies that I saw as a kid and then still being terrified to this day. It's not a horror movie, but you know Constantine with the Keanu Reeves? Yeah. Yeah, and so basically that movie, there's like maybe one minute, not one minute, 30 seconds or one minute into the film, there's like a scene of a woman that's in the corner. And I remember this specifically and I have not seen it. Whenever that scene, when I watch that movie and that scene comes out, I walk to a different room because I'm <laughs> traumatized because of that, that fucking one shot, okay? And so, I, I, it makes me have nightmares, man. <laughs> that's why I stay away from yeah. horror. I'd rather have a good night's sleep. Yeah, that's um, having those nightmares just because I binged too hard on the horror. Oh, 
one thing about her that I really like is, like, it's so cheap, but that one, uh, little trope where, you know, the camera will be in one place, and then the characters, the main characters, will, like, move out of camera, but the camera will linger, and then something in the background moves. I love that. I don't yes. know why. I just, I yes. love that so much. It is terrifying. It, it is, because, like, the thing is, like, you're sitting there and you're watching it and then you see something move in the corner of the screen. It's like when you're sitting somewhere and you see, you see something move the corner of your eye. You're like, fuck. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, oh, dude, uh, sus. That's sus. Guys, you see that? That's sus. Because <laughs> it plays on, like, something that's actually scary in your psyche as opposed to just, you know, preying on your base human instincts of going, blah. I feel like... One of the things I don't like about the horror genre, though, there's plenty of things I don't like. Because because the way it depicts women and people of color and minorities is incredibly fascinating to me. Like, I was reading up on Wikipedia, right, just about kind of <laughs> horror and women in horror and how they're depicted. And I was like, I'm just going to read up, just to brush up on a bit of my knowledge. And I found some really interesting stuff is that there's, I think the most popular subgenres of horror is the slasher and the torture. So the slasher is basically very violent. It's like got a psychopath, it's got a serial killer, and it's just basically what it is, a slasher. It's also mm. quite erotic in that way, how women are depicted in slashers. It's very sexual. And you can make a, a basis on how a man that's carrying a knife or a chainsaw is basically subliminally carrying a phallic object and the woman is <laughs> running away from that phallic object and you can make your uh, connections away from that if you want but the way women are depicted in horror between these kind of two subgenres is that women are put into dangerous and graphic violent situations and it basically contains very erotic and sexually charged situations as well. And sometimes it's quite pornographic, like what you were talking about with Jason Voorhees in kind of the Friday the 13th um, franchise, is that a lot of the girls lose their virginities. And then Jason's like, ha ha, bitch, you gotta leave your virginity for God. I'm gonna kill you now. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And with torture, the average American who watches the film or is depicted in the film because we're talking about Hollywood and we're talking about American horror right now. The average American both act as the tortured victim and torturing the hero. And so I think that's quite interesting is that kind of level of sadomasochism within kind of the audiences and within the actual characters themselves is that you don't really want to watch somebody get killed, but you also kind of do because it's satisfying, Mm. you know? It's that kind of level of like identifying with that person being scared without really being in that situation yourself. And it's kind of that level of human psyche where you don't want to get killed, but you're playing with the idea of death. And that's something that's quite interesting to me with horror is that it allows you, allows the audience to be in a spectatorship position that is completely different compared to other genres. It like makes you feel scared. It makes you be in these characters in a very different way. But also the way women are depicted, the spectatorship positions for women in horror is completely different. I, uh, past two days I've been watching the first three movies. I know that mm-hmm. there's four. And just seeing the first one, it's such a brilliant deconstruction of those 90s slashes. And... I can find no fault in it, because in and of itself, it's a beautiful film, and seeing not only it's it in, a, in and of itself as a horror film, but also as a horror commentary on the horror genre, it's like, bro, Wes Craven fucking murdered the 90s slasher back in the 90s. He, like, he, he was just so on point, he killed it. And y'all were still making these shitty films. Like, fuck <laughs> you, Scream has already been made. And I feel like, like I said, the horror film genre is the most, it's the most self-aware genre in mm. film that I, I believe. Because like, like I said, the way women are depicted, I'm just going to talk about women and I'll talk about other things later. So theorist Julia Kristeva, she comes up with a concept called the abjection. 
and the monstrous the monstrous woman which i think is something that's interesting so basically she explains it as she explains the abject as something rejected from which one does not part from which one does not protect oneself as from an object imaginary and canniness and real threat it beckons to us and ends up engulfing us it basically just means that we are kind of i'd say enamored by horror we are enamored by the the disgust of it and we are so we're kind of lured by it and that's why women are so into horror and true crime it's because it affects us and especially in horror movie most women get killed especially with the final girl trope you know and that's why as a woman when you're watching horror films you are not only like spectating yourself identifying with a woman getting killed or getting you know assaulted or getting like you know murdered or tortured you're also kind of kind of like masochistically like into it you know you're like whoa that's actually really fascinating like this could happen to me and that's it's really interesting the way they depict the monstrous woman as a woman who basically comes of age like menstruation is one of the biggest parts of the idea of the monstrous woman and because the female body becomes very monstrous and it becomes evil in that way which is really dumb but it's interesting it yeah like for example you have the exorcist or you have carrie carrie is going to be the best example i'll use that carrie it's basically she has powers and stuff and then basically her coming of age is the start of monstrosity so once she's reached pubie she is seen as a monstrous woman and the horror film and the horror genre kind of feeds into these female monsters kind of through their menstruation and how they actually threaten male power and when they are when that when they are threatening male power they actually get violently punished afterwards and that's something that is really interesting is that female female monsters Female monsters don't really commit an act of self-mutilation out of pleasure, but they commit these acts out of violence or revenge after like years of abuse from people, from parents, partners, from offenders, from like, you know, rapists and stuff. They do it for revenge. They don't do it for pleasure. And that's something that's really interesting. And there's some films out there that definitely subvert that notion of the monstrous woman, but the way it's kind of scene and the way it's kind of spectated is super interesting i i i actually genuinely think the horror genre is the most subversive genre that is in film and okay let's 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 talk about the uh the the elephant in the room here the about the horror genre which i feel like is something that is interesting but race so the race in the horror movie the horror genre is very i'd say it's not subtle at all POCs and black people die all the time. They always die first. But I think now with like, you know, the movie Us or Get Out, you know, kind of those movies where they play on race and they use that as an element of of kind of horror. I feel like they're very subverting that notion of like the mythical Negro, which is kind of like a trope that is in horror movies as well. And the way some horror movies use Indian burial ground as a way of, as a way of like creating suspense, I'm not creating suspense, but creating horror and stuff, which is very racist, by the way. Imagine uh, if you're one of our Australian listeners, imagine watching an Australian horror film and the supernatural element being caused because, oh, an Aboriginal massacre occurred here. Yeah, but it's just like we are already on Aboriginal ground and especially burial ground as well. Like there's been mass genocides of Aboriginal people, even in the place that we're standing. So I don't understand why Americans have that fear of Indian burial, like the whole Indian burial ground thing. I think it's so stupid because it's just, it's racist. It's also very colonial the way it's they very, depict it. It is. It's very colonial white person fears uh, indigenous nations sort of thing. They fear those traditions. And so those traditions having their decent respect becomes a horror trope, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. It is. And also, it is. I am living not on any burial ground. I am living in a former swamp. <laughs> Limbrook used to be a swamp. What are you doing in my swamp? 
You're like a little Shrek. <laughs> yeah. Let's kind of move away from like horror genre and horror films for a second, and let's kind of set the atmosphere for spooky day. You know, we don't celebrate Halloween in, in Aussie town, but well, we do and we um, don't. We do and we don't. But basically, just to kind of give us a give our listeners a bit of a you know nice scary little little thing. Let's kind of give me your most scariest story that isn't the man on the roof. Okay, so the actual scariest thing that ever happened to me was uh, walking down a street in Dandenong, and if you don't live in the southeastern suburbs, Dandenong is like the slums. No offense, Dandy listeners, but it's like the slums of where we live. I was walking down once one of those streets and um i was listening to music because i always am and some guy just says hey um can you help me but he was real sketch and he was standing right next to his perfectly functioning car and i just kept walking and kept looking forward just pretending as though i did not hear him even though i totally did and he kept calling after me that was the scariest thing that ever actually that happened is, to me. That is actually terrifying. And the thing is, like, I was walking in Dandenong as well at night. And <laughs> it's I, always fucking Dandenong. I actually saw somebody get robbed. And I was just pretty, I just walked. <laughs> I just walked. And I was like, I should have called the police. But then I was like, if I, I like, I, I was too scared to even call the police. So I just walked away. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, you guys. I feel really bad. I was oh no it was so bad i feel like a bad person i was like 14 i was like with my mates and i was like oh, oh my you were 14 and you weren't a person i wasn't a person i did i was too scared because i was like oh my god i'm gonna f- i have no idea how to call the police like i know how to call but just like i i'm like ah, guys i have anxiety phone anxiety please <laughs> but yeah it was really Danny Nong is quite scary but that is that's terrifying like just Like, I think living your life as a woman every day Mm. is just a horror movie, in a way. And I feel like uh, earlier you were speaking about how women are portrayed in film. I feel like that lends a lot into it, is that, you know, it's a lot of, obviously, it's filmmaking is a very male club. And so they try to overcompensate by having the final girl trope, where it's like, it's always, like, the girl who is either a virgin or gives up her virginity last. I don't know why virginity plays into it so much, but it does. I know. Some fucking Judeo Christian thing, I reckon. But like yeah. they're always the one to like stay alive and overcome the killer and like girl power. But the reality is so much scarier, like just living as a woman. And yeah, it was only yesterday that I got got called mate instead of darling at Lickerland. <laughs> so I'm still technically living the woman experience, and that's just because, like, we all have masks mandated by COVID. So, like, I, I, I still understand that female fear. Like, I have a lot of scary stories myself, just kind of, like, a lot, like, similar to yours, like, kind of walking home and then getting catcalled or, like, walking home and, like, having people... Like, I had, a, had somebody... I had a guy who was stalking me for a bit. Um, Jesus. He was following me for, like couple of kilometers like a few like a few kilometers was following me and i was like um i'm gonna walk quickly so i got to my bus and he got to the same bus as me and so i was like it like i don't know how i actually survived but i basically like like i got into the bus like sat a, like very close to the bus driver and like i knew there was cameras inside the bus as well and so i sat right in front of the camera and i kept my eye on him the entire time and he left in like the next few stops it was really, really terrifying, like, mm. actually being in that situation. But I'm really, really safe now because <laughs> I'm not leaving the house. But yeah. also, like, it was terrifying being in that situation where you're like, you don't have time to be paranoid. You just have to think on your feet. You have to survive like i was like in fight or flight instincts and my instincts yeah. was like to catch a bus like i was like if i was if i'm in a bus then i will there's witnesses there's witnesses i'm safe i like he can't do anything to me and that was really 
it was probably one of the most scariest moments of my life, to be honest. And I've been in very precarious situations of like almost getting detained by police and stuff and like getting spit by people and protests and getting the police literally hitting me. But like those, I don't care about. But a guy stalking me? Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like, you, if you're a man, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. When you're accidentally or intentionally following a woman, you're you're actually being a horror movie villain in that moment. And uh, the thing that made uh, my experience a little bit scarier is that somebody had apparently been stabbed to death on that same street a week earlier. Yeah, that's bad enough for you. That's just a bit of context that I remembered. No, because that was one of the streets in Dandenong. Because you know oh, how, like, Dandenong yeah. has safe spots and, like, not safe spots? I was in a not safe spot. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, but I think in terms of me, the most scariest story isn't really scary. Like, I have, I have had one, two paranormal encounters. And you know how I set up about Asians and Asians being superstitious and Asians loving loving ghosts basically my parents are avid ghost believers they're very superstitious but the way we see ghosts in my culture is that ghosts aren't harmful ghosts are not scary evil spirits and demons are scary but not ghosts and the differentiation differentiation between ghosts and evil spirits is that evil spirits have the capacity to destroy people's life and to give them bad luck and with ghosts they're just harmless they're just people that are lost and so um a lot in cambodia because there's a genocide and because there's a lot of bad stuff like a civil war and everything Mm. that happens there's a lot of lost ghosts that roam around the country and that's why a lot of rural cambodians keep scarecrows i forgot what they're called in cambodian but they keep scarecrows in front of their house they put red string in front of their house to keep them out of um their home keep evil spirits because there's still evil spirits outside but there's also quite normal ghosts and I remember this is something that I remember when I was a kid I was with my dad and my dad and I were uh, on a motorcycle and we were in the middle of a um, kind of like two patches of rice fields and my dad was kind of driving his motorbike until his motorbike broke down and it was just me my dad and my mom and so they hopped off because we were like in, in one bike right and so we all hopped off. I was just in the bike. I didn't know what was going on. And my dad saw a guy in the distance. And so he went to the guy and like, asked, like, which direction should we go? And the guy pointed like to a direction. And my dad basically went back to the motorbike, took me on and started, dry, started riding off the motorbike to that direction. But he looked back and couldn't see the guy again. And so the guy who basically popped out of nowhere, right, he basically told my dad to go and he went he, he went back to town again. And something that I realized, I was on the motorbike, but I didn't really know. I was only like six years old, so I didn't know. So I recently was told this by my dad and my dad told me that the, that the rice fields that we were actually, um, that we actually passed was actually one of the killing fields. And so if people, so people that don't know about the killing fields, it was where basically large fields of lands in Cambodia where the Khmer Rouge would dump um, they would dump all the bodies of the people they killed in these piles. And so my dad told this man, and he remembered this man because as a child, because my parents, they survived, they survived the war and or everything. He remembered this man. He said, I remember this man. He, um, I remember the shirt he was wearing. I used to wear his shirt when I found his shirt in a pile of dead bodies and I wore it. And I was like, holy shit. And he was like, I wore his shirt. And I remember I... Like I lit some incense to thank him for wearing his shirt. And now he kind of helps me from time to time when I'm in Cambodia. And that's something that's really fascinating because my dad would never really lie about any of this stuff. I know him and he doesn't really, he's not really a firm believer in ghosts per se. But he said that in that instance, like that was one of the moments where like it was terrifying and not terrifying it was it wasn't terrifying actually it was wholesome. <laughs> a very wholesome ghost story. The uh, sort of thought that ghosts exist that's what's scary yeah and also the fact that like this ghost was alone because a lot of ghosts don't get recognized and are very lonely and lost in Cambodia it's because if you are a person that dies in our tradition if you if you die you have to perform a ceremony or you need a light incense for them and stuff like that 
but because these ghosts never had that there is a belief that these ghosts are wandering and they're lost and that's why we have that ceremony that i was talking about in early in the episode um where it's dedicated to ghosts and it's meant to help send all of these ghosts back home um mm. back to like the spirit realm wherever they come from um and to provide them like just to kind of welcome them and and you know like appreciate them like your ancestors and stuff like that it's like very similar to the day of the dead the mexican version of day of the dead and so it's interesting the way asians kind of see ghosts compared to hollywood um and the way the western sea ghosts because i my relationship with yeah because i i don't mind ghosts honestly if there's a ghost living in my house and he's chill I, i'm fine with that you know um but yeah that's kind of in our culture we we really think that ghosts aren't bad but evil spirits evil spirits do exist and they can possess people and stuff like that and yeah that's just a fun little ghost story that i have with the uh, white people the existence of ghosts is very do you believe in them or do you not believe in them whereas with uh, a lot of asian uh, cultures it's like no this isn't a yes or no this is just a yes yeah, because the thing is, like, you don't have to see that the ghosts exist. If you acknowledge their existence, it's just, like, you live with it. And these Cambodians, they live with the fact of it. And they celebrate death. They celebrate the afterlife. And it's it kind of makes death more approachable that way. So it, it, I feel like it's very affirming, death, like, very affirming in the way um, Asian cultures see death. Like, it's death isn't final for them. Death is simply just, like, the next step to reaching whatever they want to reach but basically if i had to choose if i had a good horror movie that i really enjoy because i don't consume a lot of horror at all i really really love japanese and korean horror Mm. i feel like asian horror encompasses things that i don't feel with western horror um with asian horror it terrifies me to the core a really good one that i really like is a thai horror film it's quite famous called shudder it's an amazing film. Yeah, it's fantastic. I will not spoil it because it's fantastic. Another one that I really like is Korean horror is amazing because Koreans, we all know that they're genre jumping and they mix different genres and they play around with everything and we know that. I, I love, love Korean, um, Korean horror. The Wailing is an amazing one. Um, Japanese horror. Um, everybody talks about, you know, the ring and they talk about um you know the garage and stuff like that but i absolutely love uh it's it's called Naroy, the mm. curse and it's actually a uh, it's a mockumentary of um a thing that happens like a, a demon and it makes it seem very real and i re- highly recommend it but yeah i'm a i really like asian horror and i think asian horror is the only horror like it's the only type of horror that can really fucking scare me um because i feel like like i stay away from like western horror because i just feel like it's just overused and the same thing all over again with asian horror it's just plays on something else that is incredibly terrifying what about you nick it's like i don't know i can't pick a favorite but um uh other than everything we've mentioned like scream the thing i would say probably my favorite genre is and it's very similar to yours but um in a different way because it's australian horror i really love australian horror films because the australian film scene is so weird and (laughs) so underfunded it is it is so you get these like little classics and i think my favorite would be wolf creek oh no i hate that movie it scares me Wolf Creek actually Yeah, you hate it because it scares you. Because it's yes. legit horror. It's like you see this man and he just kills the shit out of some women. And it's like, yeah. okay, that's that's basically every horror, every horror movie since forever. But like, oh my god, when it's done in an Australian way, you just feel it. You connect with it. And I don't know if you've ever been to Central Australia, have you? No, <laughs> I haven't. I'm not going to Central Australia because of Wolf Creek. I have. I did a serious? Central Australia tour, and it was just like it was hours and hours of staring out into the fucking desert and seeing absolutely fuck all. And it's just like, okay, okay, I can see how Wolf Creek happens here, 
because there's fuck all in the middle of Australia. And this is the thing, landmass uh, wise, Australia and America are kind of like similar-ish. America's obvious, uh, a lot bigger because they've got like Alaska and all that shit, but continental US and Australia have similar landmasses, but they have a lot of shit in the middle. We have fuck all. So they've got things like um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre that like sort of play on their emptiness. But I don't feel like it really gets to the heart of emptiness the same way that Wolf Creek does. And so yeah, that's, that's why I love it. It's just, it's it gets it. Although then again, it does like fuck around a lot <laughs> in, in the first act. It does. It it. Ugh. I haven't seen it in a long time, and I don't want to see it again, because uh, Central Australia scares me because it's so desolate, and that's terrifying. Is that you're in a desert place, and some guys like, ha, ah, hello, hello there, and it's just like, oh fuck. <laughs> this has been very spooky, and um, I know you, dear listener, are not here with us, but as we've been talking, the light has been going down. It is now very dark outside, and I am now scared. Hate this, even though it was some of my suggestion. Oh my god. But anyway, if you want to find our shitty spooky memes and our very good spooky graphics, you can find us on Facebook at As a Film Student. You can find us on Instagram at As Film Student Pod, Twitter, see my really bad, spooky even, uh, shitposting at, at Film Student, and you can follow our letterboxed and see Monica's Among Us review, and see Nick's 12 Angry Men review at As Film Student. But for now, I have been Nick. And I've been.